Hey, Steve. Hello, Dan Landry. How are you doing today, sir? I'm all right. I, uh, I just got done grocery shopping, and it wore me out. <laughs> you sounded like an old person, Steve. Listen, when I make a grocery list, I sort everything by the section of the grocery, you know, paper products, fruits and vegetables, canned goods, that kind of stuff. Um, sometimes we end up with an emergency shopping list. And I don't do well with that. It exposes a weakness in my brain. And I think with I wandered which, around in Kroger for like four and a half hours. You don't do well with the emergency shopping list? No, I even lost one of my shoes this time. Couldn't find it. Had to hobble out back to the car. <laughs> I want to follow you shopping one time. That it's not sounds fun. like a great time. But if the list is in order, I do all right. So how are you? What are you up to? Well, uh, good. I'm uh, my... My studio right now feels better than it has in a long time, and that's that excites me. You put that shag carpet in, right? Yes, yes. It's so it's so nice. I I had saved it from the back of my uh, Chevy van, you know, from the seventies. They say uh, the shorter your hair, the longer <laughs> your carpet should be. What? Nah. <laughs> I'm not sure where that's going. Hey, I remember I got a uh, – I was thinking about buying a van when I turned 16. And uh, a girl I was dating at the time, I was friends with the family. The dad said, you never go out with my daughter again. Thank God you had somebody <laughs> with some sense. That's pretty uh, – that's funny. And I ended up driving a uh, – it, it wasn't the exact one, but it was basically the Starsky and Hutch uh, Torino. I remember when I was in high school, I thought it would be cool to have a hearse, of course. Yeah. But since Did you ever have one? Nah. I was lucky to have anything at all. Hmm. I had this little... What did I have? It was like a, it was a little four-speed. It was like a little rocket Toyota. I guess it was a Tercel hatchback. Oh, wow. Boy, those things had... Yeah, they, they rusted out so quickly. You know, this... Um, Golly, just talking about vans and all this, it's got me thinking about what I don't want to talk about, which is how am I going to you know, get to each gig in style? <laughs> I don't even want to think about that. You know what I'd rather talk about? No, I don't. Well, I have noticed, and I'm going back to high school, I go through phases, and it's a it's it's not quite a 12 month cycle but it it's a it's different music interests um so it's not unusual every christmas roughly right around christmas i get into irish music and uh, and typically i'll shift away from dulcimer and i'll work on the whistle and then i'll take those tunes from the whistle and i'll stick them on the dulcimer and then, I don't know, after two or three weeks, it's like I get tired of it and I move on. Well, I've got all these music phases I go through. Um, electronic music, avant-garde, jazz, country classics, you know, um, old-time fiddle tunes, bluegrass runs and licks, uh, percussion phases. I just, yesterday... 
hit my yearly uh, Middle Eastern percussion, you know, <laughs> thing. But it's funny because uh, it used to worry me. But I think when you do music full time, not only do you need a little break from your main thing, but I think it really helps your main thing be more interesting, really. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you, how does that affect what you do on stage? Well, I'll tell you, the percussion um, the percussion really helps with my sense of rhythm. Like uh, a few years ago, you were helping me not drag. Uh, often when I'm out of shape <laughs> and when I'm not warmed up and I'm having to think too much, I start losing tempo a little bit. And so, you remember that game we played on my back porch one time where we had uh, – who were the other people there? Well, Aaron uh, O'Rourke. I think it was the three of us. I thought there was a fourth person, and we had Which the uh, uh, we, we had some kind of an online metronome that would each time it went around it would leave out more and more beats, and so it was the three of us. It was it was the three of us. Okay, no, that was brilliant. That was fun. Well, I go through percussive phases, um, but but you know you help me kind of not drag a little bit. I still struggle with it. How did I do that? You just kept pointing it out. <laughs> I was being a jerk. No, no, it was good. <laughs> and it's it's one of the reasons, you know, it's why you play with people who are a little better than you. At different well, you things. know what? It's it's tough. Because Stephen Seifert, I mean, seriously, you have you have just, you're intimidating in many ways because you, you pull it off on a regular basis. You yeah. you get it done. Yeah, but if you drag, none of the rest of it matters. <laughs> it's... So I'm I'm listening to this African stuff last night and some Afro-Cuban, and I I heard things in that drumming that I've never heard before, and I I know this last year that my brain my uh, my ability to listen and feel and understand music has changed over the last year, so I'm glad I go through these phases. Um, I don't understand why I do it. I don't know why I get tired when I do, but I used to feel guilty when I'd leave the dulcimer and I read something once in a book. I forget what the book was called. It might have just been called Banjo, but it was a collection. It was a really fat book, a collection of interviews with well-known bluegrass banjo players. I think it was all bluegrass. And I I don't remember the, the one I was reading, but the interviewer said, uh, do you have any advice for people when they get burned out? And the guy said, yeah, if you don't want to play, stop playing. Don't make any big conclusions about it. Don't think it out. You know, if you don't want to play, just stop. And if you want to start playing again, do it. And don't think any more about it. And I thought that, you know, for me, that's, I've never forgot that. I mean, I've done a lot of dulcimer the last few months. I need a little break. And I don't need to wonder, oh, no. What does this mean? I don't need to think any of that. All I got to do is stop playing for a little while, not worry about it. Isn't it funny, Steve? I feel like uh, you and I are often at at uh, at opposite ends of where we are with what's going on. Because I'm most of my gigs. I have some gigs coming up in the next few months, but it's like way fewer than I had in the prior six months, which are all great. I mean, they're all wonderful gigs and good stuff, but. That's why I'm in this recording mode. Oh, yeah. It's really important to me. And 
the exact same things being pointed out. I started tracking the first cut for this new solo CD that I'm doing uh, last night. And clearly when I got to the B section of the song that I had written, you know, because I'm, I'm recording to a metronome just to make sure I can make sure it's dead on. And uh, I was struggling a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I just was. You and gotta I get thought, in shape, but I think the older you get, yeah. the the uh, the more patient you have to be with that. You can't make it happen in one day. Yeah, well, I'm not sure that that has to do with age. <laughs> no, I am. I mean, yeah. I guarantee you, when you're 120, it's going to take you a few days to warm up. Yeah, but I'm 54. You don't 54 remember and when you were like 16. When I was 16, I could just start playing really fast right away. And just play for a few hours really fast. If oh, I no, do I that guess, now, yeah. I get hurt. I'm not talking about something being fast. I'm talking about something being tight to a metronome. Yeah, there that, was a pr- that takes me time too. That's a, well, that's my point. It's, it is a very different thing. When I did the Yanni stuff, everyone on that stage is wearing in-ear molds that they paid for, you know, the expensive ones. And It's not the like loud- the mold in your shower. No, no, there were, no, no, I hope not, but I don't think so. But the loudest thing that you're hearing is a click, and everything that happens in every show is done to a click. Right. There's, there's, there's like one or two sections of rubato things, but even then, before the beat picks up again, you hear chick, 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 and then you're on it again. Uh, and that, that took some getting used to, but I think all in all, it was probably really good for me because you, you have to do it, and it made the recording to a metronome better for me. I think people that don't like a metronome, uh, the reason they don't like it is every time they sit down with it, it does nothing but tell them how wrong they are all the time. But when you get to where you, when you learn how to work with a metronome and your timing gets better, I mean, it just gets better and better. I think I, I find I love when I've got a big gig coming up and I I just say, you know, I'm going to spend the next few days just doing a little metronome time. I, I, it just feels like there's huge dividends to that. And I trust the process and it's, it's always good. Well, I, I needed to fix this section that I was having trouble with. And it really wasn't about st- speed, Steve. It was about, there was something about the way that part felt that I kind of naturally wanted to slow it down. And then sometimes that's a sign that you probably should slow it down in this section because everything doesn't have to be to a click. But this particular one, I've got uh, authentic African djembe going with it yeah. by authentic Africans that are that are spot on. So the, but the subdivision is going to be a little fluid maybe. Yeah, theirs is. Uh, but I was wanting to slow down. I mean, I could feel that I, I would started starting to get behind. So I did what I've done. I discovered this quite some time back. I don't remember if we've talked about it on this podcast or not, but it bears repeating. I turned on a delay and started playing. I didn't record the delay, started playing with a delay and did that for a little while and fixed it. And it always seems to fix it. And that's what I recommend. When I've got a student that the timing thing just isn't working, like they're really proficient at ignoring the metronome. I tell them never play with the metronome until you can't not pay attention to it. I think one of the worst things that, for a hammer dulcimer especially, because it's a percussion instrument, if you allow someone to learn to ignore the metronome, you've ruined them. If you allow them to ignore it. If you allow them to learn to ignore it, 
not just ignore it, but it's a skill because at first it's going to bug you. But then if you get to where you can start to ignore it, you're hurting them. I don't get it. Well, you're teaching them to not, you're teaching them to be able to ignore the pulse and the pulse is the most important thing when you're playing with a group. Okay, but who in their right mind would ignore a metronome? Almost every student I've ever seen when they first start playing with it. I don't think, yeah, but I don't think they're, they're ignoring it. They're simply not able to hear it. Doesn't ig- yeah, I guess. ignore imply <laughs> some kind of intention? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, maybe. I mean, look, this is one thing I remember when I was first learning to play. I could definitely listen to myself. And I remember uh, I heard the advice from a few different people. Hey, make sure you listen to those around you, you know, which that seems elementary. But I remember as a new player, it was like, oh, really? And when I was playing, I remember this so clearly. If I listen to somebody else, I, it's almost like I fell apart on my end. And so what I had to do was have this strange balance where I listened to me a little, I listened to them a little, and it was actually something that took me some time to get. Eventually, I remember thinking, you know what? I'm going to listen 60% to them, 40% to me. And it, 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 took a, it took some struggle to do that. It's, it's hard, I think, when you introduce yeah. the metronome all of a sudden. It's like, what do you mean I'm supposed to listen to that? You know, it's, right. it's a new thing. Well, you're, so you're, let's stick with a new thing, because I think the thing that you just described, while well, I believe you, I believe you're telling me the truth, and you have the ability to determine what 60% versus 20% well, is. just, you know. You've done it. A new person doesn't have any of that. And I'd like for you to go a little deeper on this, because, uh, and I'm not teaching here. I'm trying to learn. A new person doesn't have the ability to do what? You said they don't have the ability to hear it. What do you mean by that? Oh, I think they have the ability to hear it, but I mean, when you ask somebody to pay attention to a new thing, they have to figure out how to do that because they've already got a whole way of paying attention to their own playing. And then you say, hey, I want you to listen to this metronome and stick with it. They also don't even know how to make corrections. They might realize that they're not with it, but they don't know what to do about it. And that whole mental process can cause all kinds of other things to fall apart. Like they forget where they're at in the tune, you know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, as far as how to give somebody advice on that, I just I just encourage them and let them know it's normal. And I say, let's try again. Let's do it again. We'll work on it next week. We'll work on it the week after that. I might be a little meaner than you are when it comes to being a teacher. I don't know. Because I think for this hammer dulcimer stuff, because of the rhythmic nature of using the right and the left hand and getting that coordination going on and knowing exactly where the one is all the time, that you can't leave it. And I think it also applies to what you're doing, you know, because you need to know where you're. I, I doubt that you have people reverse their strum direction very often. I mean, I do it when I do exercises with a class, but I, I'm not even sure I should be doing that, but I do it. Yeah. Um, so, well, I want to stick with this new student for a minute. Cause I, just, I just went through this a couple of days ago, and I saw what you know, almost appeared to be a miraculous accomplishment uh, happen in the course of about 20 minutes, but it was dangerous. I could tell it was dangerous for a few minutes because I was in – 
danger of frustrating yeah, this they person. They might cry or never come back. You never know. Right. And it's close. I mean, so absolutely I'm offering all kinds of encouragement, but I'm trying to see what it is they're not hearing and then simplify it. I rarely will do uh, this kind of thing with a tune. Yeah, that's what Generally I do. I just start yeah. taking away stuff. Let's make that's it simpler right. then. Let's make it simpler again. Um, and I've, I, it's, I've done this before. I've, I've just had somebody move their hand out and in twice for each click or move once per click. I almost feel like if you can't just oscillate your hand in space to match a metronome going very slowly, you know, then that's what you ought to work on. But you've got to balance that as a teacher. Now, there's a couple of things. Like if it gets too boring and they're not having fun, it's not like not everybody wants to be trained to go into battle on the in the musical, you know, theater. <laughs> uh, some people are just there to have a little fun. So, but also, you can you can wear somebody's attention out, and they can kind of get fried, and you got to know when to back off. Right. I think what I'm talking about here, though, is maybe I'm still just trying to make my own point and I'm doing, and I'm working too hard at it. Thank but you for narrating your attempt to make a point. Well, I'm trying to figure it out, honestly, Steve, because I, I want to help the people that I work with be better at this thing. And I think it's really important on this instrument. It's an important, it's important on all of them. But one of my mantras is that the worst thing that I can do for you, no matter what it is I'm teaching you is teach you to ignore the beat, to ignore the metronome. And I think this process of breaking it down and making it simpler and simpler is a process of training them to listen to that click and get outside of themselves just a little bit. Yeah, and see, it's hard for me to talk about this because I've never been able to ignore it or had a reason to, but I certainly, like we said, remember I could listen to the metronome or I could listen to me, but I couldn't do both. Yeah, but like, forgive me for this, but let's say if you and I are playing and I feel like you're dragging, what's happening? It's not because it's physically hard for you. Oh yeah, it is it, a little actually. Well, I mean, let's I'm say that it's, out it's, of shape. Let's say it's something that's not, and I sense that you are a force, and I I, I don't put too much in the pop psychology of you know the alpha people and all that, but if there is such a thing as an as an alpha, you're one really? of really <laughs> music. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. Oh my goodness, Steve. Yeah. And I think it's tough for you to follow because you're such a good leader. Well, I think that I've I've spent so much time following singer-songwriters. I think I'm very good at doing that. But there has been time gone by <laughs> where I have been solo for so long. But I'm telling you a fact. I really believe that I, when I'm out of shape and I'm not warmed up and I'm having to think too much, that's when I start dragging. And it doesn't matter how simple the music is. Because when I play the simplest things, I get my whole body moving. And I and I get take on this internal intensity that, that's exhausting. And then you and me, here's what's funny. You and I, we, uh, you've gotten to be close to me kind of like a brother. And I'm an only child, so it's kind of weird. I... If I'm in a studio with a stranger and they say, hey, man, you're dragging a little, you know, I'll have a great attitude about it. When you would say it, 
It was like my brother was picking on me, you know. And eventually, though, I just thought, you know, I really want to nail this because the it wasn't like it was your opinion; it was fact. Um, well, maybe, maybe it could. I could be wrong too. No, 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 you weren't. I measured it, and I did it a lot. And the the thing about going through these musical uh, phases, I go through every time I get to the percussive phase. It's all this same kind of stuff, you know, thinking about, do I push the tempo just a, a hair? You know, do I uh, work with the metronome for a while? Um, do, I, do I analyze the tiniest movements I'm making and see if, if something's screwing me up? And I, I feel like I've done that ever since I was a beginner. It's ever since high school when that drummer took me aside, Brian Messer, <laughs> and he said, hey, you know, I'm going to teach you how to play the drums because you need to know, you got to work on your timing. Uh, and, and if you take a student and you go, Hey, look, you need to work on your timing. I think I always start that off with this. I say, you were not supposed to be born with awesome rhythm. And I, and I reinforce that when I was young, my timing was totally messed up. And I had this drummer in high school show me some stuff like polyrhythms and uh, paradiddles and, he put me on his drum set, and I just tell him, you, you can get better at this. And if you want to play with other people and you want your music to be listenable, you, you, you should spend some time getting better at, at this stuff. And when they don't hear the metronome, I tell them it's normal, and we're just going to keep working on it, you know? And when, I, when they look like they're about to cry, I stop, and I say, hey, let's do something fun. <laughs> Yeah, so I've been in a room with you and listened to you teach a lot of lessons, a lot of Skype lessons and oh, things. Oh, those are, oh. No, you're, you are great. I that has to sit there and listen to me <laughs> scream. <laughs> like, no, you're really, you're really gentle. Huh. Uh, I learned a lot listening to you teach. Really? And that's the last compliment you get I don't today. want any more compliments today. You're not going to get any more. Uh, but I think it's a little different for a percussionist than it is for a guitarist. I think you have two hands that have to be trained equally. Nah. And, uh, and, and what I know, I know, I could be wrong, but I think it's a little different. He, the, here's where it's not different, and I know it is. You don't a always different. get to be, you don't, you guys are right hand dominant all the time. Not when if you play. you're any good, you're not. <laughs> Wow. No, that's too that was too heavy. I think check this out. Everybody's with the left hand's concerned about the left hand, the fretting hand makes the sound happen, right? Very few people give real attention to when that left hand creates silence. They just let that happen arbitrarily. But the truth is there's all kinds of rests all over the music that's not even written in the music. Um, there's staccato and there's intentional rests that aren't written in music that nobody ever talks about. If you really give, I know that most people are used to doing, you know, they know how to start a note with the fretting hand, but do you know how to stop it in time to the music, you know, following your groove? Um, and that's where I think the better player really starts 
working with both hands, but I, I will agree with you. It, because it's sport, I'm going to go ahead and keep this argument going for a minute. Well, I'm agreeing think, with you anyway, so you can stop. Yeah, I think, e- <laughs> no, but I would like to test you on this. Test me. I think even when you're doing that thing where you're stopping it with the left hand and you're actually playing the note and stopping it and doing this legato thing or whatever needs to be done with that left hand, you're still counting it with your right, even if you're air strumming. You guys count with your right hand. It's definitely a big part of it. Part of me likes to think it exists in my uh, in my torso. I mean, I think I don't think you can keep track of time in your brain real well. You got to have some physical movement. Somebody pointed out to me that, and I'd like to get some confirmation of this: basketball referees wave their hands in the air to count seconds down at their waist or something like that. They go back and forth. Right. Because when you got a couple guys charging you, it's easy to lose count of seconds. Um, So I think we all need physical movement to aid, and I definitely think my strumming is doing that. But it's like ultimately I want to be feeling the groove with this real subtle dance in my upper body. You know, that's where I want it to be. But, yeah, it's definitely in the right hand heavily so what's different for you it's in both you think or what it ha- it kind of has to be in both because the lead on this instrument forces sometimes you absolutely have to switch over to the left hand where all the heavy boots beats are coming with the left hand don't you think you try to establish the groove internally not counting your hands you know physically moving to the groove I'm I'm a spazoid when I'm playing. I see you moving. I see you dancing. Yeah, and that's involuntary. <laughs> so it's not planned for sure. But I can tell you, and you see me playing, and I do something where I strike, and my hands kind of slowly lift, almost like I'm conducting, or or you know, drawing two rainbows leaving from the center and coming back. That's not drama. That's how I count space. Yeah, you move in space. Yeah, and you move in a certain way, you know, based on what's happening. Well, check and, this out. I have a theory that on hammer dulcimer, you know, I guess I've heard people say, hey, you know, so-and-so leads with their left hand or so-and-so actually leads with their right hand and then somebody else says, I just do whatever I have to do. And then somebody says, well, I spend most, you know, there's all these different comments on that. If you think of this for a second, imagine a fiddle tune with a bunch of eighth note pairs and in a perfect world let's say you could just alternate left and right strokes for the whole tune left right left right left right left right left right or something yeah like i just that. drew it out okay but the problem is on that hammer dulcimer every once in a while you would end up crossing hammers right which is kind of weird well, or you might just have something where there's the, the note doesn't exist where the right hand can yeah, get to yeah. it. You, you, you know this next thing needs to be hit with a right hand, but that note doesn't exist there, right? That's right. Um, some hammer dulcimer players, and I'll try to be quick about this, they know that the and of every beat, the second note of every eighth note pair is not as important as the first, and they'll often drop out the second of a pair when it would involve sacrificing their left-right alternation rather than put some physical movement in that could compromise their groove. Yeah, so a a percussionist would say, you know, you don't have to do that if you learn the magic of the paradiddle. Yeah, if you practice. So any movement that takes you out of that basic oscillation of left-right 
could potentially threaten your groove and your tempo. Your groove, yeah. But you train to make that that threat be less, you know, invasive. Well, and for those who might not know what that is, just the, here's the quick lesson. This this set of four eighth notes that Steve's talking about, you would count as one and two and three and four and, and you would normally stick. Well, that'd be eight eighth uh, notes. Yeah, okay. Right, thank you. Uh, I, th- I thought I said four eighth note pairs, but anyway, oh, that's what I meant. Oh, four pairs, right. Four pairs. So, and you would stick it right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left. Most of the time, if you're right-hand dominant. If you're strumming it, you would strum you know, out in, out in, out in, out in, right. you know, maybe I'm guessing, but not everybody but, does that, but not everybody does it. But if, if the sticking is going to be impossible for you to get to the note with right, left, right, left, like Steve just said, there's other ways of looking at it. You can go instead of right, left, right, left, right, left, you can go right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left. Yeah. And which makes that little shift in there, that little shift. It takes you out of a binary oscillation where you're just going back and forth or left and right or right and left or up and down right. or whatever. And that's a thing that has to be learned as a group of four or a group of eight because you can do half of a paradiddle when you need to. And then all of a sudden you've shifted the lead to a left-hand lead. So it's an interesting thing for strummers because when you're flat picking especially, some people are alternate pickers. So they're going to go out and in. Whether there's a note there or not, out, out and out, out, out and 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 out, that kind of thing. Other people, though, they figure out what they think is the most efficient. So they might go out, out, out and out and out, out in, out in, out, out in, out in. You know, they just mix it up. That's two different schools of thought. You know, I would contend that they have a harder time if we were to put them, you know, pull them up in a digital audio workstation and look at their timing that it's going to be tough for their timing to be as good as the other person. I This is my theory. I believe alternate pickers have better timing. I believe that the other kind, which I don't know if we want to call it sweep picking, it's just where you decide what you think is the most efficient thing. I think that second group is going to be able to play faster in some instances, but their timing isn't going to be as great. Because it's all, you know... the. If you have six different movements and they're all and it's six actual different movements where you cover different distances, it's um it's hard to keep that all measured. It's much easier when you just have a back and forth kind of thing. But like Tony Rice, he's probably one of my favorite flat pickers in the world, and he's not an alternate picker, I don't believe. Correct me if I'm wrong, somebody. And I well, heard somebody I'm- say that Tony Rice, um, isn't necessarily good because of his technique, his ideal technique. You know, he's good in spite of his bad technique. I don't know if that's true at all. I mean, that's, that's possible. Sounds awfully offensive, potentially. But I can just say he's he's one of my favorite pickers of all time. Well, I don't know if I can articulate this, but is it possible? I'll use that term sweet picking that you're talking about. That if you have somebody who's a sweet picker who is totally able to nail alternate picking, that their sweet picking might just be the the paradiddles happening in their head, and they're making the switch. And so to them, yeah, but you they're just it. doing when it you efficiently. Slow it down, you hear the yeah. So you're you're still saying that it's going to show up if yeah, you were to slow it down and look at, at it. You know, seriously, I'm not going to argue with Tony Rice. Seriously, Tony Rice, yeah, but, if you're listening, <laughs> you're a you're a monster, dude. I'm not going to mess with you at all. Yeah, but but you did one time bring your stuff into a workstation. And spread it all out and get all uh, 
obsessive about what was in front of the beat and what was behind the beat. That was a little weird. Well, that was for Irish music in particular. Dealing with swing. Here's what I found, Dan. Teachers, beware. Because there's so many things as a teacher, I think I got it figured out. And some of that's true, and some of it's a mythology that I'm perpetuating. Um, when I started to use 120 frame per second video, and when I started to really listen to what I was doing at like quarter speed, half speed, when I started to look at pictures of how I was really holding the pick, how, you know, all kinds of stuff like that, I started to realize I have been teaching some stuff. Uh, I, I basically, although I would say I generally know what I'm talking about, there's some stuff I've been teaching where I didn't know what I was talking about. And so when I see a teacher get a little bit hoity-toity about their position, I always think, well, you better slow down, chief. And here's a particular <laughs> example of that. There is a strummer out there. I won't mention the instrument. <laughs> and the, the the strummer said you got to use your arm, no wrist. Use mostly arm when you're playing fast. So when I watch slow speed video of that person and they get when they're slow they're using mostly arm, which I think I do too. But when they got super fast, crazy fast, it was all wrist. But see, that person doesn't know it. They're out there teaching everybody, don't use your wrist when you play fast. They don't even know that they're, that's what humans are like. That's why when you're a teacher, you got to stay humble. And you really got to check out your stuff, you know? Well, you know, Steve, I think that's where, and this is true for anything that you hit with sticks. And I'm wondering now if you're going to tell me it's true for your, you know, your, your acts as well. We're all the same, and we all break down in very similar methods. It just happens at different speeds. What do you mean break so, down? Like something quits working. So like this, this paradiddle thing. This becomes fractured. <laughs> well, let, let, me, let me throw out a couple other options. This paradiddle thing, right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left. If that right, right, and that left, left is not a bounce, you stand to lose your groove. And so a pair, I don't even think a paradiddle really happens until it's a bounce. Well, for you so in it's, particular. It's really right, left, right. If you're a hand left. drummer, it might be a little different. I don't know. No, you still, you do it there as well. You absolutely. Bounce. I could, absolutely. I could pull a djembe out and bounce a paradiddle. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, and it's that bounce that keeps things going, but you can't do that bounce until you hit a certain speed. And, and as you head to that speed, there's this zone where you have to go from a control to a bounce. And it's really difficult when you're in that zone to make that transition. And I think some people might have like a head knowledge of what a paradiddle is and teach, okay, well, it's right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left. And people are throwing doing all those strokes, you know, from whatever their big muscle group is when they n need to be going way faster than that so that it's impossible to, for them to do it from their big muscle groups so that they have to loosen up and, and do it from their wrist. Does that See, make sense? Yeah, well, what it makes me think about is, first of all, not everybody wants to get this geeky about... You know, Wrong podcast. You know, there's some... <laughs> this happens all the time. I'll have a student who just says, you know, I can tell on their face 
that I they just don't want to go this far right now. But I can usually quiz them and find something in their life they do go that far with. Like maybe they know wine, you know, or maybe it's a woodworker. Um, I find that most people go deep, uh, but not on everything. And I don't think there's, I don't think I should insist that anybody goes this deep. When somebody comes to my class and they, they're a beginner and they want to know how they should strum, I try to give them something I think is going to give them the most success the quickest. You know, I get that, but but we aren't doing the the podcast to help beginners get started. Podcast. This is a geek podcast, and it's fun to get to talk about this stuff. Yeah, but what, what but what's geeky is when you realize that there's some musicians out there that can get geeky about dulcimer, but they might not want to get geeky about t- tempo and rhythm. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I don't want you to get your feelings hurt or nothing. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> It's clear that some musicians get obsessed with groove, timing, tempo, leaning on the beat, playing behind the beat. Um, and generally it pays off in that their rhythm is more infectious. You know, people listening really adopt that groove. Uh, some people, like you've seen it, there's somebody that will obsess and be a dulcimer geek about uh, lyrics and old ballads or something like that, you know, uh, but, but their timing is not good. Well, that doesn't mean they don't have value as a musician, you know? No, but it means they're a ballad geek though. Oh, well, yeah, but a dulcimer geek nonetheless, not everybody wants to go deep on rhythm. I have, I enjoy doing that. Um, like I just ordered an Egyptian Rick <laughs> and, um, I got a video on uh, a you know Egyptian Rick technique and rhythms. I, I I may not do that more than two or three weeks, and it might just be a half hour every other day. But I enjoy going deep on that rhythm. Um, every, you know, in music, there's like there's so many skills in music. None of us are gonna be get an A plus in every area, you know. My ballad lyric ability is I'm I'm at an F <laughs> or an incomplete or something. Um, I I want to encourage anybody listening. If you're thinking right now you're not one of those people that wants to go deep on rhythm, I would encourage you to go deeper <laughs> to some extent. And if you don't want to think much about it, find somebody you think has a, an infectious rhythm. Ask them for some advice and just kind of try it out you know right and people with bad timing it's hard to listen to them there's different kinds of timing too but i think it's worth getting this geeky about but i don't want somebody to think that they don't have musical value if they can't stomach it not everybody is going to be that that kick butt strummer you know not everybody's going to have that clean flat picking. I mean, what are you supposed to do with your whole life? Just, you know, spend it all learning how to play a dulcimer? I don't know. Maybe maybe for somebody that's the best thing they've ever done. I mean, it brings them all kinds of joy. Yeah, in their, we're not talking you know, about that person. Right. And I just don't want – I want to be careful, though. I agree. First off, I agree with you on this, even though I'm argumentative. You I, do that anyway. Not. Sometimes I'm like, he doesn't even really, you know. I'm not. I'm not arguing right now. But – I fear 
I've only seen one person, and I'm sure there's more, but I only really recall one person in my life that absolutely had zero sense of timing at all. And she couldn't march in marching band. The band was marching one, two, three, four, and she could never get that. She could have been struggling with anorexia. She might have had family trouble at home. She might have had migraine trouble. That's right. I mean, but it's, it's hard. To whatever know the reason why was, doesn't have good timing, but it's usually because they have a deficit of training, right? That, and that's what I'm saying. So, if somebody's a is a pretty good dulcimer player and they've learned some stuff and they can do it, I think your timing can get better. Oh, I totally believe that. You can work at it. I to- I hate when somebody says, "Well, I just wasn't born with good timing." It's like, right. please, right? And I would say you're right. Nobody was. <laughs> They're absolutely right. Are there any prodigy plumbers? I'm, what I mean by that is a kid, he, he's like three and a half years old. He you sees plumbing for the first time, and he's just a plumbing genius. It would be really hard to identify that child. I haven't seen any news stories on that. It's always music. You know? They'll take somebody, it's like, this kid's never heard uh, classical music before, and we just played Bach for him, and he reproduced it note for note. You know, a fifteen-minute piece. Generally, if that's happening, then that child, and um, I, I would say there's not a child who's like that who doesn't have a strong deficit in one of the other seven intelligences. I'm going to go out on a limb, and I can't wait to be proven wrong. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I've never met anybody like that in my life. Why? Well, you know, you know, people talk about um, uh, Mozart, for instance. Right. The history has is has just been it's so full of legend and stuff that just didn't really happen. And he's clearly some, had an a, some kind of aptitude for it, but we believe it's overrated. We've talked about that before. Wasn't just overrated. I mean, it's been found out that his dad wrote some of the stuff, and I think he had an uncle that wrote some of the stuff that he was credited with writing as a child. Did we talk about John McEnroe yet? No. <laughs> Somebody said I should read his autobiography. That doesn't interest me. Oh, it does. A, a co- you just don't know well, it yet. Yeah. So he would get, he was very young. I forget how young. It was crazy. And his dad was like totally hardcore about, we're playing tennis. I just built you a, you know, I just built a tennis court. You're doing tennis. John McEnroe hated tennis, I think, is what somebody was telling me. And that when he went to the World Cup and won it, he was hating tennis. And it's like, we hear all these stories about a parent who really pushes somebody from a very young age to excel at something. I mean, when I hear when I hear a story about a kid that can supposedly reproduce Bach from ear after one listening, some just amazing, you know, like a fugue on a piano, I believe the kid has heard it before. I believe that somebody's been working with him. But yet, like I said, I want to be proven wrong. I would just simply like to meet somebody like this. What would it take to have... So you would have to meet them? A video wouldn't help you? It would be hard to prove it. I admit that. I mean, I've watched videos of really amazing things happening by young people. It's just that, like you said, Mozart... And it's perfectly reasonable that he would borrow some of his dad's stuff and his dad would work with him. That's good teaching, you know. But the thing is, nobody ever talks about that. They just act like he came out with, with this stuff just out of thin air or something. Right. I, I would just like to know more of the real story. And and so forget about music for a minute. Forget about the arts. What about, 
And I know there's people with massive math aptitudes, you know, just mind-boggling. But without any training, could somebody do, you know, advanced calculus without any training or anything? Just right out of the womb? Like... Well, no, not probably not out of the womb because there's all kinds of stuff they're learning, but they might not be learning the other things that would come along with learning that. Like, all right, I'm going to teach you math, but this math isn't as important as washing your face, you know, or washing your hands or looking people in the eyes when you talk to them. All they may have aptitude for is that because of, and, and that's that autism spectrum right. disorder. So know? even though I sometimes doubt this kind of stuff, I certainly, it wouldn't take much to just make me go, yeah, it's real, you know? But here's the, here's why I always doubt that. And I, I, I don't know if I told this before or not, but my friend Russell, we were in the fifth or sixth grade. We were talking about what we wanted for Christmas and we both decided we wanted keyboards for Christmas, you know, like those little home keyboards with the little keys and stuff. And we both got keyboards for Christmas. Every day when I got off the bus, when school started back up, when I got off that bus, I couldn't wait to get into my house, turn the keyboard on, and start working on learning by ear. And what I was doing is I would pick songs like Mary Had a Little Lamb, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, and or little, little segments of popular songs. I can't tell you how... F- slow going it was um to find that next note like just to find the next like let's say the sixth note of a simple nursery rhyme to to get up to the actual sixth note was incredibly tedious prodigiously but and but for some reason i enjoyed that and nobody i didn't have this idea like you had to be born with that i just thought well i guess this is hard i want to do it i'm going to work on it but here's what's funny is when Russell started to hear my progress because I did get better at picking up by ear. Every time I learned a tune, I got better enough that it was encouraging to me. Um, he said, you know, how much are you working on this stuff? And I didn't want him to know. I wanted him to... <laughs> you wanted him to think it was magic. Yeah, and then he said... Uh, <laughs> He said, I think you're talented with this. He said, I don't seem to be able to do that. And I remember keeping my mouth shut because for the first time in my life, somebody was saying I was talented at something. You had found your superpower. And I wanted to enjoy that. And here's what I'm proposing. Sometimes an individual or a group of people, maybe just two, maybe it's two parents and a kid. Sometimes it's, uh, they think it's to their benefit to present this idea that it's magic, you know, when it really comes down to they've been working on it. They actually want you to feel bad about yourself in some small way. Uh, And I would even say the worst case scenario is in a marketing scenario where I was with you until you said that you think that you're stupid or something. No, I, we have got to stop speaking intent for other people. What's that and mean? thinking, thinking that we know what the intent of someone is doing, and making everything some sort of teleological yeah, thing. Yeah, where but there's this... nothing wrong with with looking at the other side of the possibility. I mean, because right now we're saying, you know, one possibility is, oh, well, some people have it and some don't. Maybe they're just not good at nurturing. <laughs> are you talking about gardening? What are you talking about? 
nurturing. Maybe some people just aren't good at it. And it's like what we talked about last week. People are just, they aren't thinking about you for the most part. Yeah. They're, they're thinking about themselves. I'm, and they're I'm not, just telling it, you that when the illusion that I was more talented was presented, I went with it because it made me feel good. And I'm sorry for that. And now when I'm a teacher, I feel like I fight against that. And I tell somebody, look, there are natural limits. I do believe we're born with certain aptitudes, but I think a lot of that's vastly overrated. And if you want to do this, you can get better at it. Right. So you and I are, are both about five years past reading that great book, Talent is Overrated. Was that Jeff Colvin? I'll look it that's up That's a really quick. cool book. Yeah. And I think we were both influenced by that. Would you agree with that? Big time. It changed how I taught a little bit. Uh, no, hold on. I'm looking it up just so I can see and, who the author is. Here's what's funny, Dan. Sometimes it's easier for all of us to just blame our genetics than it is to actually do the work. And I'm guilty of that. Many. I mean, I'm not picking on anybody. I uh, hey, listen, so it is Jeff Colvin, G-E-O-F-F-C-O-L-V-I-N. I highly recommend the book. The, Talent just the quick is de- overrated. That's right. The quick description is, as to explain why a few people truly excel, most people offer one of two answers. The first is hard work, yet we all know plenty of hard workers who've been doing the same job for years or decades without becoming great. The other possibility is that the elite possess an innate talent for excelling in their field. We assume that Mozart was born with an astounding gift for music, and Warren Buffett carries a gene for brilliant investing. The trouble is, scientific evidence doesn't support that notion that specific natural talents make great performers. And so if you did go read this book, what you'd find is that he uses this term a lot that, has, that stuck with me called the accelerating factor. There has to be some accelerate. You have to have, you have to kind of have the natural ability uh, you need to be surrounded by it. There's this concept of 10,000 hours, which is overplayed. It's used too much. But understand that it's not 10,000 hours practicing scales. It's the fact that you were listening to music as a baby's part of the 10,000 hours. And this, you, know, just, you know, I'm not saying. And but wait, well, let me finish that. But then there's the accelerating factor for the great folks is they usually had some kind of a break. Well, let's say you had 16 family members that were great musicians from the time you could even breathe that that could be an accelerating factor let's say as a pianist you happen to have big hands i would call that a talent or whatever you know but a whole lot of what you know it's your it's your attitude your problem solving and i think the book says it's not saying there's no such thing as talent it's just overrated they believe right well like it has you have to define what they're going right. what that word's going to mean and i think we've brought this say, up before you know yeah i don't know if we did it on this podcast but the thing i would follow that book up with is if you read it also read malcolm gladwell's outliers what is it outliers yeah i haven't read that is it, am I? Let me make sure I'm not making that up. Is that a book about aliens? No, <laughs> it's about people who who break out. Uh, it's a, it's about people who are considered to be extremely talented. I want you know, to encourage who, people. You can get better at this stuff, you know. Now, and also, I want to let people know that I think this music ultimately serves us. I don't believe we're all serving the music. I could care less. I don't want to. I don't want to get in trouble over that. Um, But ultimately, it's about the people. It's not about the sound. And um, 
I don't, I don't, let's say that you don't want to work on your timing. You Let's just say somebody hates doing that. I don't think there's a moral imperative that you're supposed to do that, to have value as a human. You'd have to define the word moral for me before I could agree or disagree oh with that. And, and, what do you well, mean we by don't need agree to, exactly? Could you we please don't need to do that right in now. a uh, mathematical oh. language? Well, because I think there is a bit of a moral imperative if you want to, if you want to be great. Yeah, so, what are you going to define here's, great and what do you mean by want? Yeah, maybe we, maybe we'll do that sometime. So outliers, <laughs> just outliers. Here's the preview: is that it, uh, it's about learning how to find meaning in your work, learning how to recognize opportunities for success, how to understand accomplishment, what it really is, learn the importance of timing, and how core values define our behavior. And that it's interesting because uh, talent is overrated. I think lays out the case that talent is overrated. We use that too much. And he sort of touches on, okay, so then you have these people who are outliers that have these accelerating factors, but then Malcolm Gladwell's book is all about the outliers, just the stories of their success. Well, see, it's real short. interesting to me. Yeah, I think you'd like it. Would it focus on the other side of it a little bit. Exactly. But I, this is what I've said in workshops recently. If you don't really like if you really don't want to be in tune enough to really work on it, if that just drives you insane, um, and and you're just going to live in a bubble or play with other people who don't care if they're in tune or not, you know, then I guess that's fine. I really mean that. But if you I'd want re- it to I be agree. listenable, if you want me to listen to it, you don't even have to tune it, but you better have a bunch of other stuff that's just super interesting going on. You know what I mean? Because right. we, we've said this before, we like John Mayer said coming out of Berkeley School of Music, one of his main goals was to make listenable music, and I've never forgotten that. There's nothing that says it has to be listenable, but I, 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 I do also want my music to be listenable, especially by me. I want to be able to you know, enjoy listening to it as I'm making it, but... Right. And it depends on what your goal is with your music, of course. There's different goals. Right. All right. Hey, I want to throw in a funny here. You're going to do something funny. (laughs) Well, it's not all that funny, but I found it interesting. And you you advised me against doing this, but I want to do it because we're here at the end of this thing. But, you know, so I've made this this switch for my studio computer from Mac to PC. Oh, yeah. Uh, multiple reasons we're losing people by the thousands right maybe not this is people people (laughs) just first matter of fact i can guarantee you we're not losing people by the thousands because you would have to have a thousand people (laughs) for that to be true uh losing them by the tens but now the mac pc fight people people will uh, pull up their chairs and think of the michael uh, jackson popcorn meme you know because there's gonna be a fight uh Really, there aren't that many big differences I've found in particular because of the software that I use, which is mostly the Adobe Creative Suite. But listen to this. Steve hasn't heard this yet. Okay, so you're going to like this. This is geeky. I'm not going to say the name of the person unless he writes me and says I can. Which So uh, I wrote somebody who is one of those people who knows what he's doing. Okay? on on With Windows and with all things Microsoft. All right. Close friend. I said two questions. Do you mind if I toss you a Windows question every now and then? Like he I promise really to not- knows what he's doing with Microsoft. He, he really, really knows. Okay, keep going. I promise not to abuse this privilege, meaning that I'll research first. 
I'll look at TechNet and see if I can learn this stuff. Which, by the way, if you have a Windows machine, learn TechNet and use Bing for searching TechNet because they have it all indexed. Uh, and and then I t- kind of made a joke and said, okay, so my second question is going to be my first abuse. Under the help menu, when you're using a Mac, there's always that little search box. And it's a huge part of my workflow on a Mac. Yeah. Be- because especially when you're using a menu-heavy program that's complicated, you know, like I know the word quantize is in there somewhere. You know, and there's been there's quantization of audio and there's quantization of MIDI and so you type that in, it shows you the five different places that word shows up. So you're familiar with that, right, Steve? Yeah, but let On me just in, interject that what I just tested is when I go to my help menu on my Mac and I go to search, I just looked for quantize and Logic Pro X says no results found. So that's interesting. And I get that what, all the time, but keep going. Which means it's not in the menu. You don't press return. You just start to type it in and it'll show you right. the menus that it appears in. So... So, yes. Now it's coming up, and I never hit enter. I'm telling That's you, right. the first thing I put in never responds. It's always the second. Keep going. All right. So, anyway, I, so I basically laid that out for him and said, for the life of me, I can't find this in Windows. And he wrote me back, and he said, basically, no problem. You can ask me any questions you want to. And he said, uh, that, <laughs> that, the fact that I can ask him any question, he says, that's the good news. The bad news is that there is no such functionality in Windows, and uh, that's basically the short version of it. Now, the longer version is the good stuff. You want to hear it? All right, so you're used to going to a help menu in your Mac applications, and there's always a little search thing there that that's allows right, you which... to find the different items under the menus because you, know you know copies in there. You just forget where it's at. That's but right, on, and it should. And you're and it asking how to down. do that on Windows, and he's saying you can't. He he said you can't. He said you just can't. And here's the reason. This is so interesting. He said, uh, and it was nice of him. He said you're a fellow geek. He said I'll unapologetically explain why it's difficult to implement. And believe it or not, as I get into the guts of uh, anyway, he says basically I'm. He's critical as well, even though he's very much involved. He says, one of the things that has helped Windows be successful is that it's always committed to backwards compatibility. And that single feature alone lets customers continue to run applications which were written more than two decades ago without issue. However, this same feature has also become something of an albatross around Windows Next because backwards compatibility means that a lot of old code gets dragged along from version to version. And he says you won't believe the amount of screaming that Microsoft hears every time they try to deprecate old functionality. Oh, yeah. Uh, He says, but here's where it causes problems in the scenario which I'm running into is there are dozens of different frameworks that developers can use to create the user interface for the application. And some frameworks are from Microsoft and some are from third parties. Most of the frameworks probably have a way to enumerate their menu entries, but you can't say for certain that all of them do. And there's some aside stuff where about some code that he's written. Uh, Since every framework is different, there's no standard way of creating a built-in way for the operating system to enumerate the menus. The frameworks are just too different. Microsoft could theoretically attempt to rectify the problem by creating a standard to which all future frameworks would need to to adhere. But once again, the level of screaming from third-party framework developers would be enormous. And uh, anyway, that's about a third of the way through it. He goes on and on and on, and he basically ends up saying – 
can't do it. See, some of the stuff where we're like, why doesn't Windows just do this? Or why doesn't my iPhone yes. just do this? You have no idea what you're asking for. I know. That's why I thought you'd like this. And that's, isn't that cool? Now, still, at the end of it, I had to stop myself from being snarky because I wanted to go, well, it doesn't seem like it'd be that hard to me. <laughs> you know, as, as a user, there ought to be a way. But I understand. I understand what he's saying. And I get that. It took Apple a long time to build what they have because they're always telling people, no, you have to do it exactly the way we want you to do it. And there's some advantages in that, and there's some advantages in the way that uh, Microsoft does it. And I want to tell you another just quick one about my studio working so well with this PC now, which I never thought I'd be doing again. I have a uh, M-Audio Axiom 49 keyboard. Which doesn't work with the Mac, right? stopped working about three years ago with the Mac, it's brand new again because I'm working with a PC. I think we need to remember, I mean, why do people say every day, you know, uh, nobody's perfect? It's. I think it's because we go around expecting perfection from each other, from operating systems, from somebody's playing and timing, from an instrument setup. Sometimes people need to just chill the, the heck down, you know? right just chill out a little bit good good catch good catch there you know like if you're at a festival and uh it's just not the best sandwich you've ever had why don't you just be thankful that there's a festival at all and just try to do an act of service for somebody in need (laughs) right and sometimes with all the best efforts sometimes with the best efforts things break and I had to, I shipped, and have you shipped your box back yet? We both use uh, Mark of the Unicorn Motu uh, digital audio interfaces a lot, we, and I had one both that completely died. Both of us need died. to ship our boxes back. They mine, will replace them. Neither one of I us shipped have shipped mine. Them. You did it? No, I shipped it today. You bet. If I can't it's even gone. ship the box or answer my emails on time, why should I expect Microsoft to have some kind of cross-compatibility between all the different <laughs> menu platforms? Yeah. Anyway, it's just, that was a, it was just such a, a delightful response, and I really appreciate the, my friend who sent that back to me. Hey, He's probably listening, so forgive me for, for reading that. Listener. I know you. Yeah, you, yeah. listener. Who, me? Not you. The listener. Who, me? Hey, don't give up on the metronome. Your audience, whether it's your cats or your church or the people at the festival, your audience will thank you for any time you put in on that. And I, I just want to, I, I, I want to end with that. All right. Thank you for your time, Mr. Steve. Hey, and thanks for those who've given us positive comments. There's been a bunch of them, and we really appreciate that. And uh, don't forget Dulcimer School. That's uh and in the magazine, Dulcimer Players News Magazine, and both Steve and I do gigs. If you're a festival producer, call us. We'd like to come. Yeah, and don't forget about white lard, folks, because you can make a fluffy cake with it. That's all I'm saying. Boy, that always made my grandmother used to make me crust. We better go, dude. No, I got to tell you one thing I did today. Oh, Guess what I did that just warmed to the opposite degree that it breaks my heart when someone ignores a metronome. This warmed it. My grandfather uh, grew up in the Depression, so I heard all those stories. He said when they were had absolutely no money and their family wanted to give them you know, something nice, some kind of a dessert, you've seen me do this. You know where I'm going oh with this. Oh, my goodness. They would take saltine crackers and crumble them up and pour milk over it and eat it with a spoon. 
Well, I started doing that with my grandpa when I was a kid. That's awesome. And it is absolutely my favorite comfort food, has been for years, and I eat crackers and milk on a regular basis. But, but I've when seen I, you do it with cheese nips, but you're saying... The salty, salty crackers, crackers and milk. I am totally going to go do that right now, and I mean it. Listen, listen. Today, I introduced my grandson to crackers and milk. I had, I had, uh, I had some my, my Barrett time this afternoon. We had some as soon as he got there, and then I took him swimming, and we swam for a couple of hours, and came back in, and he wanted cackles of milk. And we had crackers and milk again. And I'm telling you, I was grinning ear to ear, and he was happy. Isn't that great? God bless you, Dan Lander. Thank you, Steve. I don't know you're qualified. Give me that. But thanks. <laughs> See you later.